Well, seeing as everybody has simultaneously quieted at the same moment, maybe that's a good cue for us to get started. So I'd like to greet you all. Uh, we're very, very happy to have you all here this evening. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening. And on behalf of the Center for Islamic Theology, I'd like to welcome you. My name is Amina Nawaz. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center. And on behalf of the Chair of Islamic Doctrine, Leila Dimiri, and uh, her research assistants, who have very kindly also participated in the organization of this event. We're very grateful to see you all and to um, hopefully have a wonderfully fruitful discussion this evening. So I have the great pleasure of introducing our guest this evening, but it is very challenging to introduce Dr. Winter because there's so many aspects of his work and his current projects that demand attention that it's difficult to choose the ones that are most relevant. So um, I think what I'll try to do is give us a little tour of, of, of some of his projects. So he's, as most of us know, the Sheikh Zaid Lecturer in Islamic Studies at the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge and the Director of Studies at Wolfson College, also at Cambridge. In addition to these duties, he is also the Founder and Dean of the Cambridge Muslim College and that the motto of that college is Faith in Scholarship. And what the purpose of that college is, is to engage the classical Islamic tradition and bring it into conversation with many different contemporary contextual issues in Britain and in Europe. In addition to those things, he's also the chairman of the Muslim Academic Trust, which releases every year a number of very important and uh, critical publications dealing with classical Islamic tradition as well as contemporary authors. And it's also spearheading the project to build the first purpose-built mosque in all of uh, the entire city of Cambridge. So that has brought us into conversation with many, I say us like I'm still there, but that's brought them into conversation with many um, interesting members of the broader Cambridge community also. Uh, in addition to these things, if you didn't think that was enough, he's also running a project called the British Muslim Song Project, which um, engages lots of different traditional melodies, bringing in oriental modes, mixing them with British melodies, with words. So it's a fusion and, in his own words, a cross-cultural experiment, transposing, transposing melodies and harmonies. Uh, this sort of bridge-building aspect of Dr. Winter's biography is something that I think we'll all find very personally relevant, especially in the context that we're working in. And something that uh, is a huge part of his work is an interreligious dialogue. He was a key signatory in the Common Word Project, which I'm sure you all are familiar with. And also the many subsequent projects that resulted from that uh, initial document. So Dr. Winter, we're very happy that you've come to talk to us today about this aspect of bridge building. Uh, I find it really astonishing, actually, the way that theologians can continue, can bring in dimensions of uh, elements of conversation. We think we talk about communities in Europe, for example, and the idea of communities and what is a community. And today, Dr. Winter is going to talk about a whole new dimension of community, which will hopefully add lots of depth and richness to our discussions of it. So, Dr. Winter, I'd like to invite you to talk about nations like yourselves, animal rights in the context of Muslim debates over the Quranic verse 638. You're most welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Noahs. And of course, I'm hugely grateful to the, uh, to the department and to Professor Demir in particular for the uh, honour of this uh, invitation. Uh, what I want to do is to offer a few forays in the general direction of what I take to be some unresolved and 
possibly there beyond resolution questions regarding the particular temper agenda and implicitly, as it were, the uh, theological provenance of the Quranic text, specifically rooted in its unusual uh, take on the question of animals and animal consciousness. Many of you will know that this is a lively question on the boundaries of the, uh, the question of uh, questions of ethics and also the philosophy of mind nowadays. The extent to which animal minds can be analogized to human minds and the legal, ethical and religious uh, implications of that. A debate that in the context of religion departments tends to take its cue from the uh, sometimes by comparison with the wealth of Quranic material, meagre data present in, in the biblical text, uh, but which triggers for us, I think, the, the rather interesting question of why it is that the Quranic text uh, includes so much coverage of the animal kingdom and, uh, in particular, seems to vest animals with some kind of uh, sentience. Uh, and even, as I'll indicate, and perhaps this is very uh, cutting edge in terms of the shape of contemporary philosophical arguments, some sort of moral accountability. Uh, I'll also be setting it in, t in the context of the wider theology of nature, which uh, the Quranic uh, religion uh, adopts, um, including some of the, the contentious discussions in the pre-modern period. I won't really be dealing about contemporary Muslim with contemporary Muslim evolutions of the question of uh, animal minds and animal rights. Uh, Neil Robinson is the most recent uh, author of a foray into the rather contentious issue of uh, why the Quran is so rich in references to the animal kingdom. Sarah Tlili, with her book recently published uh, in Cambridge, is another example. There is a certain upsurge of interest in this somewhat enigmatic area. I want to narrow uh, the bandwidth a little bit by focusing specifically on the exegetic uh, reception of one particular verse, possibly the one that is most uh, mysterious and, and difficult, <clears throat> a crux indeed in the entire question of the Quranic reception of the matter of animal minds. And this is in Surat al-An'am, the cattle, verse 38. Here is a cautious translation. There is not an animal in the earth, nor a bird flying on two wings, but that they are nations like yourselves. Umamon amferlukum. <clears throat> we have neglected nothing in the book, then unto their Lord they will be gathered. Now, the initial Sitzimleben, the original context of this, is the Quran's condemnation of Arab pagans who, in roughly Durkheimian vein, had long defined their tribal identity in terms of animal totems. The Prophet himself had been born into the tribe of Quraysh. The shark does look very Durkheimian. As part of its function of delineating the tribal identities, paganism had maintained elaborate rituals of animal mutilation and other animal-linked practices, which the new revelation chose to see as abominations. And this chapter receives its name because it deals with various such sacrificial and votive rites. This is the long sequence in particular, verses 137 to verse 147. In place of a universe directed by tribal deities in which humanity was divided by totems and fetishes, the new monotheism preached a fellowship of believers which was summoned to see the animal order as a sign of creation's unity and integrity under the one God. The verse seems quite straightforward in its affirmation of animal and bird life presented and valued as sentient aspects of creation. And it triggered centuries of very intricate debate. 
Two themes proved particularly taxing for the commentators. Firstly, the sighting of animals as nations like yourselves, omamon amthelukum. And then, secondly, the gathering of animals unto their lord. In what sense, later Muslims wondered, could animal communities be like us? And is it true that somehow, like their human counterparts, they will be resurrected to face God's final judgment? The modern Tunisian theologian, Ibn Ashur, laments that this is a verse that begins obscurely and ends more obscurely still. The Quran's initial vehement targeting of indigenous Arab religion quickly took on wider implications as part of the continuum of broader late antique debates over the implications of monotheism for attitudes to the world. The markedly upbeat, affective atmosphere of the Quranic revelation reflected the text's own self-understanding as a historic reparation, as it says, a shifa, a healing, not only of paganism, but, as it sees it, of the religions of the book. When the new scripture of the Quran burst into the uh, former provinces of Christian Byzantium, it was widely received by its audience as a synthetic corrective, repairing the penitential and starkly ascetical temper of the Christianity of the day and pushing the dominant monotheistic style back in a generally, we might even say, Semitic direction. In a Mediterranean world where a pessimism about the world and the body had become normal amongst Christians who had inherited many of the world and body-denying assumptions of late Hellenistic religion, Islam saw itself as bringing an unmistakably life-affirming, though hardly indulgent, worldview. Its anthropology repudiated patristic teachings on original sin and encouraged a pious style of travelling to God through the world rather than reaching him by creeping around its edges. The new scriptures' ceaseless conjurations with the material universe as a palette of signs pointing to God stood at the heart of Muslim styles of contemplation. In a new and more positive dispensation, which was unmistakably biophiliac and even celebratory of the natural order. And Zeev Maren, in his book, uh, Virtues of the Flesh, uh, Passion and Purity in Early Islamic uh, Jurisprudence, is, I think, the most uh, significant recent monograph in this era. There is a series of reflections on this uh, fundamental revolution which the Quranic moment introduced in the, at the time, a uh, very ascetical and uh, body-denying spirit of the dominant monotheistic mood. He sees it as one of the most fundamental revolutions or uh, recalibrations introduced by the, the Quranic eruption. The Australian writer on religion, Rod Blackhurst, evinces this Quranic ethos in his essay on Muslim prayer. This turns out to be a primordial enactment of humanity's status as bridge between heaven and earth. The Muslim worships in a fully embodied way in a mind-body synergy particularly characteristic of Islam's sense of itself as the reclamation of a putatively lost Abrahamic primordiality. This is the idea of the, the fitra seen as a particularly Abrahamic quality and part of the lost Abrahamic vision which Islam took itself as repristinating. The entire Muslim life is shaped by forms of worship which engage the body and spirit with the movements of sun and moon, and hence represent the believer's full belongingness to the created order. Nonetheless, he is, like Adam, between water and clay, the water, which is of heaven, and the clay, which is the stuff of which he is made. This is one aspect of humanity's status as, as in the middle, and specifically the Muslim as being part of a middle nation 
the middle nation here indicates, according to Blackhurst, part of the, the significance of it is that we are between water and clay, between heaven and earth, the vertical aspect of, of our cosmic role. This Abrahamic cosmology depicts religion as being of the fitra. This is ultimately a strongly Quranic term which denotes nature and what is natural, not as fallen, but as a theophany shot through with grace and reminders of God's presence. It's perhaps due to this twofold Quranic challenge to Arabian and ancient Christian views of the natural world that we find the early Muslim scribes keen to record a very large bulk of prophetic directives on animal welfare. These have been investigated, I think, particularly well in Richard Fault's book on the question of animals in Islam, which is a text which is uh, almost polemical. Um, I don't think he is himself a Muslim insider, but certainly he um, puts on the, 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 the armour of an apologist in his uh, idea of the vast improvement, as he sees it, brought to formerly Christian and pagan territories by the arrival of this new and reparative dispensation. Foltz even goes so far as to conclude that the mainstream Islamic legal tradition, these are his words, accords more rights to non-human animals than do the legal systems of the contemporary West. Quite a strong polemical statement, which he believes is supported by the witness of the classical Sharia canon and the pro-nature vision of the new post-Christian revelation. The religion's founder, as a man exampling what Blackhurst identifies as Islam's distinctive blend of a primordial sense of appurtenance to nature with an extremely uncompromising and simple monotheism, a kind of or monotheismus, seems to have dispensed a good fraction of his moral teaching with reference to the animal kingdom. Some of his dicta are evidently attacks on pagan practices, the mutilation practices of pagan Arabia, which I uh, uh, referred to earlier. So the famous hadith where he says, may God curse anyone who maims, mutilates animals. There's a genre which specifically forbids that type of pagan or heathen practice. But there's a larger genre which indicates a more general insistence on more general ethical treatment of the animal order. So some examples taken almost at random from this very, very large corpus, just some random hadiths. It is a great sin for a man to imprison the animals which are in his power. The extent of imprisonment, what that meant for uh, practices of agrarian welfare, was something that again triggered a centuries-long debate amongst the ethicists. Prophet is saying it's a great sin, and so of course the theologians want to know what are its boundaries. Another example a dog was once panting by a well almost dead with thirst. Beholding it, a harlot of the children of Israel removed her slipper, dipped it in the water, and gave it to drink. For this, God forgave her her sins. This is a very well known water tree text which opens up a line of inquiry which I would like to follow, but I think don't have time for this evening, which is the specific ambiguity of the early Islamic uh, directives on the question of dogs specifically. The question of the ritual impurity of dogs combined with a certain genre of hadiths which commend specifically kindness to dogs, more than there are hadiths about kindness to cats, for instance. It's an interesting tension there. We were once on a journey. This is another hadith with God's messenger who left us for a short while. We saw a homara bird with two young, and we took the young fledglings. The homara hovered with fluttering wings, and the prophet returned, saying, Who has injured this bird by taking its young? Return them to her. 
it's a hadith in Ibn Hanbal, Abu Dawood. These are in the canonical hadith collections. Hummara, I think, is a kind of bastard. Another example, and again, this uh, had its uh, repercussions in a centuries-long fiqh debate. The Prophet forbade that animals should be set to fight each other. This is in Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, uh, and is uh, one of the issues that... Uh, confronted, continue to confront uh, Muslims when faced with, for instance, uh, uh, bear baiting, bullfighting, uh, cockfighting, and, and, and so forth. It seems to be explicitly forbidden in this uh, canonical hadith. In some cases, and this seems even more curious given the, the time and the place, there is a strong prophetic challenge to the custom of hunting, a culture which had existed in Arabia from time immemorial. Hunting game for food is still permitted, but sport hunting really seems to be prohibited. So, another hadith, this is in Nasa'i and Ibn Hanbal, there is no one that without reason kills a sparrow or anything higher thereto, but that God shall ask him about it. And also, the Prophet cursed anyone who took an animate creature as a target. Manitakhada la ruhin gharadan that takes an animate creature as a target uh, is, to be, is to be cursed. So somebody uh, practicing his archery at a pet chicken or a goat, for instance, um, would, be taken, uh, would be taking liberties with this prophetic uh, injunction. Foltz, who has a lot to say as a kind of, I guess, militant uh, vegetarian campaigner, uh, a lot to say about the, the paradoxes which ensue that these uh, prohibitions seem to have been honoured in the breach rather than the observance. And, of course, the Muslim royal elites in all periods were very much given to uh, the art of the hunt. It's a, a prohibition which has been spectacularly flaunted. But the prophetic teaching, whatever one might make of its provenance and context, is, is there. It's a matter of record. Now, texts like these have an evidently sort of hortatory fairly straightforward purpose, emphasizing the essential goodness, worth, even sacrality of God's creation. More curious uh, is a body of hadiths uh, which seem to invest animals who are, in some context, around the prophet with a near-human degree of consciousness. And it's in the context of these hadiths that the, uh, the, the controversy in the tafsir, the exegetical accumulation, um, tends to find its point of departure. What are we to make, for instance, of the following tale narrated by Abu Dawood? The hadith has the prophet going into a farm where a camel is experiencing some kind of fit of groaning with its eyes streaming. The prophet, unafraid, walks over to it and rubs its ears and it quietens down. He asks who the camel belongs to and a man identifies himself as its owner. The prophet says... Do not fear God concerning this beast which he has let you own. It complained to me that you starve it and tire it by overworking it and using it beyond its capacity. In the same hagiographies, we find that key instances in the prophet's career depend on animals for their successful outcome and that these animals are presented as recipients of some kind of divine inspiration. And this takes forward the, the discussion which uh, Neil Robinson has already begun on the idea of animals in the Quranic text as being agents or some kind of occasions for uh, divine salvation. <coughs> it's there in the Hadith as well and in the Sirah. 
Um, and if you think about the seerah, there's a number of key incidents in which animals are playing a key role in God's unfolding uh, design of salvation for his new Abrahamic community. Perhaps the best-known example is the prophet's uh, critical choice of a site for his home and mosque when he arrives as a refugee in Medina. Seeing that rival clans all wish to have the political advantage of having him as their guest, to preclude disputes, he famously lets go of the reins of his camel and says that providence will guide it to the correct place. Very well-known incident in all of the Sira uh, texts which has the prophet just sitting without holding the reins of his camel and the camels wandering around in the different tribal areas of Medina and eventually settles in a place that then becomes uh, uh, his, his, his mosque in Medina. <coughs> in another incident, and when you think about it, there's quite a few of these, the Abyssinian Christian army, which had come to destroy the Kaaba in Mecca, is confounded by two animal interventions. Firstly, its fearsome battle elephant refuses to march on the holy city. And secondly, the invading army is pelted with stones by birds. No less celebrated case is the rescue of the prophet from pagan pursuers during his exodus to Medina. As he hides in a cave, pigeons make a nest and a spider weaves a web over the cave entrance. A miracle which served to persuade the search party that no one could have entered the cave for days. And these hadiths, which choose to show God's prophet or his city saved by the intervention of animals, one is struck by the fact that these creatures are presented as consciously acting under divine tuition. This seems almost anomalous in a new religious culture which is in full revolt against a pagan animism in which desert creatures and even trees and interesting rocks have been reckoned to contain jinn of various kinds a kind of human generalisation about the rationalising shift from polytheism to monotheism would presume that ancient superstitions about souls inhabiting the natural world would be vigorously repressed in favour of a belief in divine and human monopoly of consciousness and agency. But in the primal Islamic case, something more complex seems to have emerged. Again, we appear to revert to Blackhurst's characterization of the Prophet's religion as a reprise of very ancient and even primordial styles of religion, combined, coupled with the rising and setting of the sun, the movements of the solar system, a very, very ancient, primordial type of, of faith, coupled with the fierce rejection of any type of polytheistic belief. The Muslim tradition itself promotes this self-understanding, The Meccan shrine is claimed to have been the worshipping place of Adam, long predating the Jerusalem temple. Islam, taking itself as the final moment in the monotheistic drama, also claims to be a significant rehabilitation and invocation of pre-Abrahamic forms of worship and relationship with the world. It's thus that the prophet can communicate with animals, who can communicate with animals, bears a book which instructs its audience to consider them as nations like unto yourselves. Having very briefly sketched Islam's self-understanding as the recovery of a biophiliac and primordial religious style, let us now to proceed finally to survey the exegetic literature on our chosen Quranic crux. Here's the verse again. There is not an animal in the earth, nor a bird flying on two wings, but that they are nations like yourselves. We have neglected nothing in the book, then unto their Lord they will be gathered. Firstly, 
we must consider the puzzle over the use of the word nations, animal nations. The word is umam, plural of ummah, the Arabic term almost invariably applied to human collectivities. Muslims famously constitute an ummah. In arguing against pagan cruelty, scripture here appears to take a rhetorical line in suggesting that birds and animals themselves form communities, or one might say peoples. But the rhetoric does not invalidate the comparison, and the commentators needed to determine exactly what kind of communities animals form. And their preferred view was that ummah means something approximately like a species. So Fakhruddin Razi uh, produces a hadith in which the Prophet describes dogs as constituting an ummah. That was relatively easy to sort out, but more tricky was the question of how these species might be like ourselves. The commentaries offer the following possible interpretations. These are at least the key options which are given. There are other more um, recondite ones. Number one, nations indicate that their members resemble each other, can reproduce with each other, and find comfort in each other. Interpretation number two, they are like humans in that they are also created by God and depend on his provision. Number three, they are like us and unlike the inanimate realm in being capable of mutual communication. Four, they are like us insofar as they are reached by God's grace, care, mercy and compassion. Five, they resemble us in being resurrected to receive their rights, hukuk. That's a key term in the tradition and I'm going to look at it in more detail later on. <coughs> Number six, each species is an ummah inasmuch as it prefigures some set of human potentialities. So some humans resemble dogs, for instance. Others are like peacocks or lions and so forth. And these are the main views that are listed in Razi's great commentary. Others appear elsewhere. So, for instance, Al-Qurtubi dies in 1273, believed that animals are like ourselves in that it is not right for humans to wrong them, thus indicating that the word ummah specifically denotes a community possessed of rights. There is evidence that the, the Prophet's companions cited this particular verse in the context of their urging kindness towards animals. As you can see, these interpretations are very disparate, but they all tend to share or converge on an ethical conclusion. Whatever its exact sense, the verse evidently enjoins us to behave morally towards these orders of creation because God has deliberately stated that they bear a valid resemblance to our human selves. All the interpretations converge on that. They seek into a second set of interpretations which one might call cosmological. Razi then cites the companion of the prophet Ibn Abbas as holding that these communities are like ourselves because they know God, attest to his unity and praise and glorify him. This he links to another well-known Quranic text. There is nothing that does not hymn his praise. That's 1744. And also a verse about living creatures, uh, each of which knows its form of prayer and worship. 2441. God himself and his messengers have spoken to non-human animals like the ant, the bee, and the hoodhood. Hence the animals are to be seen as somehow possessing a form of consciousness which may be used to promote God's purposes. And here we return to the, again, in the pristine Islamic, but a monotheistic uh, moment, 
perhaps slightly curious uh, crypto-animism or anthropomorphism, uh, which I indicated earlier. The Razi cites a hadith in which the Prophet says, whoever kills a sparrow in jest, it will appear on the day of judgment, chirruping to God, saying, O Lord, this man killed me in jest and took no benefit from me and did not leave me to eat the fruits of the earth. Here the creature is appearing before God and actually saying something. Illuminated in this way by a large number of prophetic homilies, the verse became the locus classicus for Muslim debates on animal souls and animal worship. The Sufi tradition in particular, with its ecstatic focus on the Quran's vision of all creation witnessing to God in its own distinctive way, picked it up to produce some very lyrical outpourings. Here, for instance, is one of the great Persian Sufis, Ruz Behan Bakli, dies 1209, in his Quranic commentary, Ara'is al-Bayan. God created the animals, birds, predators and insects with the primordial nature, fitra, of monotheism and instinctual knowledge of him, which is why he speaks to them and has created for their minds pathways to his eternal presence and secrets. It is by that presence that they live. Their whistling, lowing, singing and roaring are from the sweetness of the spiritual world which is reaching them and the manifest lights of his glory. They long lovingly for God and to taste the oceans of his mercy. Rosbihan then produces some uh, typical Sufi stories. The mystic Somnon was once preaching on love and a bird which had been listening ecstatically fell from the sky and died in front of him. He also gives us a legend about a lizard that recited a poem in the Prophet's presence in his praise. For Ruzbehan, in the Sufi tradition, Umamun Amthalukum, nations like yourselves, in seeking the true God, means that they are like humanity and intuiting him from his subtleties in creation which bring out the lights of his attributes in the world. Interestingly, the animals are seen not just as passive substrates for the divine properties, but as active pursuers and agents of the truth. So in what sense are they like ourselves? He goes on to explain as follows. All the nations, the Omam, share a basic created nature in being composed of the four elements and are made with animal and spiritual natures and are equal in eating and drinking, motion and congregation, the qualities of the self and properties of identity, such as desire, anger, passion and pride. This equality, tesavi, is based in the stuff of the primordial nature, fitra, according to which God made them. As he has said, from it did we create you, to it did we return you, and from it we shall bring you forth one more time. They all have their drinking places in the ocean of God's speech and his eternal words which indicate the paths of his unity. The nature of animals, birds and insects and predators is mingled with knowledge of their maker and creator, whose qualities and essence they know. This discourse is not difficult or insufficient for them to understand. As the centuries pass, one finds the primal Islamic insistence on animal consciousness and moral significance elaborated in a set of ever more intricate debates. Many of these, as I've said, are of considerable interest, but for reasons of time I will confine myself to just one of these, in which the prophetic insistence on some kind of real animal deliberation seemed to run against what are surely its natural limits. The major jurist, Abdul Wahab al-Sha'rani, who died in 1565, composed a Sufi-tinged book entitled Gems and Pearls, 
in which he took the view that animal consciousness and adoration of God are so advanced, albeit poorly comprehended by us non-saintly humans, that animals are truly addressed by revelation and are not only beings worthy of moral treatment, but are themselves morally accountable. They even have their own prophets, he says, and he discusses whether these might have been humans sent to minister them, minister to them, <coughs> before concluding that, in fact, the correct view is that the dogs had a prophet who was a dog, the horses had a horse prophet, and so forth. Otherwise, he says, the words, uh, nations like yourselves, could not properly apply. Shahrani here joins his fellow Sufi, Ruzbihan, in proposing that the animals are literally, as the scripture says, nations like ourselves, particularly in the most defining activities of knowing and praising God, receiving prophecy, and leading a moral life. Here, yeah, another reminder of the fact that literal readings of the Quranic text uh, uh, often converge with a type of Sufi exegesis. This, however, the idea of dog prophets and horse prophets and so forth, really proves too much for uh, commentators who are uh, less intoxicated by these mystical interpretations. So in the 19th century, Shaarani is directly uh, challenged by name by uh, the Iraqi commentator Al-Alusi. For Al-Alusi, the discussion should be a sober and technical one. Humans have, have nafs nataqa, rational souls, a term which, of course, the theologians of inherited from the ancient Greeks. But a question must be answered. Is it heretical to teach that animals, too, have souls of this kind? Alusi offers a discussion. He begins by giving examples of directed agency among animals, bees with their cells, spiders with their webs, and so forth. The sheep, he observes, fears the wolf without having to see what the wolf is capable of. Why do lions not attack each other? because they have an awareness that they can be of mutual benefit in the future. But this consciousness is not the same as human consciousness. When animals appear to act wisely, he says, they do not do so on the basis of deduction and reason, but from inspiration and divine direction. A lion may refrain from attacking other lions, but only at most because of a pleasure principle. It does not wish to compromise its own utility in obtaining food. This is a heavenly inspiration, akin to that which prompts an animal's love for its offspring. But it is not reason of the human type. For Alusi, Shaarani has fallen prey to the widespread Sufi love of attributing soul and consciousness to just about everything. True, God has said that everything on the earth praises him and that we just don't understand the words that they're using. But their praise is by way of mute eloquence, lisan al-hal, through the very act of being what they are, and they do not form and intend words to extol a creator whose reality they might somehow have rationally inferred. Still, given the undeniable and extensive prophetic teaching on animal behavior and souls, Elusi has no objection to using the term nesnataka in the case of animals, as long as we bear in mind their very disparate capacities to perceive and apprehend. He writes... However excellent they may be, they do not reach the degree of perception and autonomy of which man is capable. They know God. But as for the claim that they have prophets of their own kind, I neither hold this view nor anathematize those who hold it. So even though he comes across as being slightly scornful of uh, Shaarani's Sufi perspective, he's not going to explicitly condemn it. 
Another century passes, and we have Tafsir al-Manar, the beacon, the Egyptian modernist uh, commentary in the early 20th century. And this cites Alors' discussion in detail and adds this. If by rational soul, nafs nataqa is meant a soul like the human soul, this can only be decided if one has a proper definition of the human soul, and where is he who can claim this? This leads naturally to the second of the great puzzles thrown out by the verse. Are the animals to be resurrected, as the text seems to indicate? The word hashar, yosharon, is used. And if so, does this strengthen the case that they are to be judged, and hence are not only sentient beings, but in some sense moral ones as well? The verse ends with the prediction that the animals will be gathered to their lord. This appears to be underlined by another Quranic text. And when the wild beasts shall be ingathered, or idal wuhushu hoshirat, 81.5, which is to be a sign of the cataclysmic last judgment. The concept in both verses is that of hashir, the normal Quranic designation for the resurrection at the end of time. Some commentators balked at the picture of the resurrection of all animals for judgment and proposed that hashir here simply means that all animals will be united in death and there are companions who could be cited, companions of the Prophet, who could be cited in support of this view. Such attempts to defuse the text's plain sense were, however, confounded by a cluster of canonical hadith whose concern was to emphasize the plenitude of God's justice and which brought animals unmistakably onto the eschatological stage. Here is one of these texts. On the day of judgment, all of creation will be gathered together, the cattle, the riding beasts, the birds, and every other thing. And it shall be by God's justice that he takes the hornless sheep's case against the horned one. Then he shall say, be dust. In this case, the idea seems to be the horned sheep had a certain advantage. The hornless sheep had a disadvantage. God will restore that <coughs> imbalance in some sense at the day of judgment. And that's a hadith narrated by Ibn Hanbal and others. The concern of these hadiths clearly is to show that the animal order is incorporated within God's structure of of justice. So another well-known hadith describes the Prophet seeing two sheep fighting each other. He asks his companion, Abu Dhar, if he knows why they're fighting. (coughs) And when Abu Dhar confesses that he has no idea, he replies, but God knows and shall judge between them on the day of judgment. Here we confront the second of Ibn Ashur's obscurities, the real enigmas in this verse. There was no deep problem with the notion that God would show justice to the animals, but on closer consideration, the exact nature of their accountability, their taklif, seemed extremely taxing. The early Mu'tazilite movement, which came to be dismissed as schismatic, had included in its theodicy the doctrine that a perfectly just God was obliged to put right all animal suffering at the end of time by providing celestial compensation. The vision of a heaven filled with every animal and insect that had ever lived was not widely popular. Would even vermin be found in the heavenly abode? The mainstream orthodoxy denied in any case that God could be subject to any obligation. He will quicken dead animals not because he has to, but from his free fiat and glory and compassion. 
Moreover, the orthodox reason that a god obligated to impose strict justice on animals would also have to send some of them to hell, and this was widely agreed to be rather unlikely. Some Mortazalites also held that animals would be in heaven forever. After all, this is an example of their thought processes, if God killed them, then his justice would oblige him to compensate them for that, which would be impossible since they would no longer exist. Considering these paradoxes, the mainstream thinkers concluded that after the animals had experienced full recompense, God would painlessly turn them to dust. But many orthodox writers like the idea that at least some animals will be received into heaven. Mawardi, for instance, says that in paradise the believers will enjoy riding them and looking at animals of various kinds. Divine recompense for all human suffering is thus generally accepted by normative mainstream Sunni Islam. But what about reward for animal moral conduct? As we've seen, for Sufis of the stamp of Shahrani and Ruzbihan, animal consciousness, as detected by the saints, is so human-like that animals can receive profits and moral codes. They could easily appeal to the hadith, the sheep fighting each other will have their dispute resolved, presumably through God uh, punishing uh, the culpable party. But the more purely exoteric authorities attribute a rather vague kind of lesser morality to them. As Qurtubi says, the pen does not move for them, but they will still be taken to task, the pen being the divine record of virtuous and vicious acts. For the theologians, animals are not mukallaf, not subject to full moral accountability as humans are. They note that there are other entities, such as the mad or children, who will be resurrected but are insufficiently morally accountable, and are hence not mukallaf. Not every mind that faces eternity in heaven is fully competent. Further insight is supplied by Ibn Ashur, who cites the medieval Sicilian jurist Al-Mazuri, who taught that the resurrection and recompense of the animals exists to show mankind God's perfect justice, an evidentiary idea of what this is all about. Thinking legally, Mazuri continues by observing that the verse requires believers to be kind to animals because the animals have rights, hukuk. If animal resurrection and the restoration of their rights at that time applies to animal-on-animal injustice, then it is even more appropriate that animals should be recompensed for wrongs visited upon them by human beings. Here Ibn Ashur cites a well-known hadith in which the Prophet describes a woman who went to hell for starving her cat to death. In this context, Islamic law accepted that animals possessed rights. While animal rights are not really treated as a kind of single and systematic discourse in the Sharia manuals, the following definition by one of the leading jurists, this is Al-Aiz bin Abdus Salam, who dies in 1262, may well be taken as normative. This is his Sharia exoteric jurist definition of what animal rights might be. These are the rights over man which are vested in animals. Man must spend on them appropriately, even on animals which are old or sick and are no longer of benefit. An animal has the right not to be burdened beyond its capacity. It must not be placed in the same enclosure as any animal of its own species or another which would harm it by breaking its bones, wounding it, or goring it. <coughs> and he includes various other rights, including, uh, you might say, reproductive, reproductive rights, the right to access animals of the opposite gender. 
Of course, the jurists also permit animals to be slaughtered for food, but this is strictly on the grounds of a divine permission, which is invoked at the moment of slaughter. To eat an animal killed without such a blessing is to commit the sin of eating carrion. The permission exists not because it reflects the purpose of the animal's creation, as in Aquinas, but simply because of divine fiat, which confirms the human species in its place in the natural order. And so Ibn Abdusalam adds to the list of animal rights the right to a good death. A few brief remarks to conclude. <coughs> One notes, first of all, how hard the mainstream theology, and not only the Sufis, strains to find a maximalist account of animal rights and souls. Measured against most medieval European discussions, it's evident that the advent of Muslim revelation did indeed provide some significant ethical and even ontological breakthroughs. The language of animal rights, which is a term still hotly contested by ethicists in our day, is naturally at home in the Islamic scriptural, legal and prophetic universe. Animals are, in a real sense, like ourselves. Moreover, they are to be resurrected and shown justice by an all-loving God. These rights are intrinsic, not instrumental. Whether or not an animal is someone's possession is disregarded. In this way, Islamic constructions of animal life, strongly rooted in prophetic teaching, form part of the larger pattern of the revalorization of nature brought by the Quranic dispensation, enshrining an agenda of reparation constructed against the then regnant paradigms of nature, which for reasons which I'm not competent to pronounce, had been incorporated into the worldview of early medieval Christianity. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for such a deeply rich uh, lecture. I'm sure there's lots of questions. So we will um, open the floor now for some discussion. If that's okay, yeah, we can take some questions. Yeah. So um, I would open it up to all of you for your thoughts and questions and comments. Yeah. Making eye contact. I can't tell. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. Question. I'm not sure that I've conducted a sufficiently comprehensive survey of the literature to know when it, the concern kind of waxes and wanes, but it is an interesting, interesting question. Uh, uh, particularly when you look at the Sharia manuals, uh, there is quite a lot uh, of discussions, uh, not just in the sort of basic commentaries, but also in collections of fatwas on... Uh, what are the bounds of legitimate human behaviour regarding animals. Uh, but it generally isn't put into a single section. It's kind of scattered references. A lot of Ottoman fatwas, for instance, about the treatment of domestic animals and, uh, and farm animals. What to do with the stray dogs of Istanbul, that kind of question. Just come up currently, it's, it's a practical issue. Um, it would be wonderful if somebody could spend perhaps half a career, actually, 
method of assembling all of that material and creating a definitive statement that would allow us, as you've suggested, to map chronologically the eras and the areas geographically of Islamic civilization where this was a major concern. My sense, however, is that the concern is, uh, is fairly universal uh, because the Quranic verse is making a very strong statement here, however one might interpret it. It does seem to be, on literal reading, genuinely imputing sentience and moral accountability to animals, and that produces in the literature which I've primarily been surveying in this little paper a kind of substantial uh, accumulation of exegetic remarks, which is quite richly uh, illuminated by the, the, the Hadith literature. So it was a central discussion. Um, it wasn't something that emerges later on. It's implicit in the, the early narratives itself. Um, one might add also that uh, in more recent times, uh, it seems to have fallen away, and uh, one finds, apart from a few writers, sometimes of quite a strongly sort of polemical bent, in contemporary Islamic cultures and in more recent tafsir literatures, with the exception of the tafsir man- uh, manar, uh, it doesn't seem to be such a major concern. Uh, and manar gives a good of early modernist interpretation and I think probably represents the culmination of the discussions in its, as it were, um, epistemological agnosticism about what sort of minds animals have. If we don't understand what the human consciousness is, the debate over what an animal consciousness might consist in is probably a fool's errand. And I think at that point the debate stops and things move in, in a rather different direction in more recent exegetic terms. But it's an interesting question. Um, thank you, Chef, for the very enlightening lecture. My question would be about um, um, something you mentioned very briefly, which is um, the, uh, using um, animal meat for food. Um, as you might uh, know, there's a vegetarian, vegan movement mm-hmm. nowadays um, that, that distances itself from, from, from this kind of thing. What is the Islamic, in general, the Islamic take on um, the eating of animals? Since there are, there are nations like us, um, how does this combine? Yeah. Well, you might see here an example of a kind of tension which uh, is quite revealing, I've already mentioned the tension between, on the one hand, the fact that the Quran is evidently so strongly pushing back against Arabian paganism, one feature of which was attribution of mind to all kinds of things in the non-human realm of creation. And yet the Quran, apparently very surprisingly, has a very uh, developed understanding of animals actually having some sort of consciousness. And these stories of the Prophet sort of communicating with animals and calming them down and they speak to him is... Uh, prima facie seems odd in the context of a world that's sort of denying the pagan animistic uh, conception. And I think that that Blackhurst's idea that this is a a form of monotheizing repristination of of an assumed primordial type of religion is quite a helpful way of developing this. Uh, And that would also be the context of animal sacrifice. uh, a problem with the, the vegetarian and vegan movements is that they're often connected, say, to modern near pagan appropriations or various anti-industrial uh, green types of, of counterculture. But those cultures have to recognize that just about every primordial pagan human society on Earth is carnivorous. 
there aren't too many vegetarians in the sort of New Guinean rainforest or amongst the Australian Aboriginals. It's an ancient primordial aspect of our sort of mammalian created form that we are carnivores. And in certain uh, sort of uh, ancient hunter-gatherer situations, that is the only significant form of protein available. Certainly in uh, pastoral uh, nomadism, such as prevailed in the ancient Near East, if you didn't eat meat, you couldn't live in the desert. And the ancient Israelites and the, the ancient Arabs were certainly aware of this. You couldn't really be a vegan if you were living in sort of Tihama or Nejd thousands of years ago. It was an impossibility. So it, it's, it's one of these, these tensions that on the one hand, there's this big theology of animals, animal rights, animal consciousness, the, enormous, the enormity of taking animal life. But on the other hand, the idea that there is ritual slaughter, that the Hajj culminates in, in ritual slaughter, that the Prophet slaughtered animals and enjoyed eating the shoulders of sheep. And that juxtaposition, I think, can only be reduced or interpreted in terms of Islam's sense of its repristination of some ancient modality of being human, but with this almost Schmidt-like or monotheismos, the idea that if you go back into the distant past, a putatively pre-Abrahamic sort of uh, uh, recollection of Eden, what you find is not vegetarians but, but carnivores, and what you find is not paganism but monotheism, the Abrahamic idea of the Hanif, the default uh, human nature being monotheistic and carnivorous. Uh, but yeah, it, it is an interesting, interesting question. But the, the the tension is resolved for the tradition by the prophetic precedent, and by the fact that the ritual slaughter is so important, and that without it, a Muslim simply can't consume meat, because it is only through the divine permission uh, that uh, the taking of the life of an animal, which is intrinsically an enormity, becomes something that's morally defensible, not otherwise. I have maybe a complex question. Uh, if you regard classical Sufi literature like Kushayis and Sala, mm -hmm. uh, the apology of the practice of Sama, chanting, reciting poetry as a specific ritual, mm -hmm. uh, this apology is based often on, on the ancient practice of the camel drivers, on singing, of right. singing to animals mm -hmm. in order to guide them. Right. So if we think of the symbolism of camels, ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีนี้ทีน
pastoral nomadic past as one of its tropes that are particularly used in the context of Sufi literature. And another would be the Leila Majnun romance, uh, which is the most common story in all of Islamic civilization. It is, although the story is supposedly from the early Islamic period, it probably has older, uh, older origins. And one of the things Majnun frequently does, of course, is that he's hanging out with animals, and the animals are the only people who come to him in the desert listening to his sort of endless reiterations of his sort of monomania about his, his lost beloved. Uh, yeah, but it would be interesting to see, I don't know if there's something you've worked on, something that, that uh, looks analytically at the way in which the idea of the camel driver as the one who moves the animals uh, along is appropriated and incorporated into the rather different Sufi context of getting the, as it were, animal souls of the Sufi Murids, Sufi aspirants to, to, to get moving. Uh, it's, it's another of those you know, interesting ambiguities in the civilization that had this voracious desire to take stories from everywhere and anywhere, despite its conviction of its own unique rightness. All of these people are using stories from the Persians and even from the ancient Jahili Arabian context as tropes for their mystical journey. Another, another of these interesting paradoxes. I have a question concerning animal experiments. Do you have any conclusions after your studies about animal um, experiments concerning um, clinical research? Mm. Well, this is one of those sort of universal ethical dilemmas, and I don't think that Islamic ethics is particularly let off the hook by these texts. Uh, the modern Western culture often has quite an admirable concern for animal welfare, uh, and in the context of that is deeply uncomfortable with the use of animals in medical and cosmetic experiments. And that debate is well developed, and people like Peter Singer have looked at them and take, made their own conclusions. Islamic civilization begins from analogous premises, although, of course, it sacralizes animal life in this, this way that I've been outlining. But it also, because of its sense that humanity is the summit of creation, will, just as it allows the consuming of animal flesh and the use of animal leather um, for human use and the use of draft animals and pack animals and the whole agricultural pastoral dimension of, of our civilization, uh, generally does allow forms of animal experimentation if some very clear human benefit ensues. If you can save lives through that kind of research, then you do pursue it. And there will be debates which probably aren't terribly different to those in modern Western secular culture about the extent to which you can use animals for testing the toxicity of cosmetics, for instance, shampoos and so forth, which are not strictly necessary. We've already got enough kinds of shampoos, so why test new shampoos on the eyes of rabbits in a laboratory, uh, that's, that's a very legitimate concern. But I'm not sure that I've seen a specific uh, Islamic theology of, Islamic, uh, of animal experimentation. There's something in Al-Hafiz Masri's book, Animal Rights in Islam, which I think, in which I think he comes down quite strongly against it. But there's always going to be exceptions. It would be difficult ethically to justify the co a complete ban on animal experimentation. Thank you very much for your input. Um, I have a question. Since the verse doesn't provide any kind of um, specification, classification of animals, uh, what's your account or the account of the Ramah you were studying on 
do, do the animals have any kind of um, order? Are we, are we as Muslims um, treating some animals in another way than others? I think in practice in Islamic civilization, people would have certain favorite animals, and the horse was obviously one because of the Prophet's love of riding and its sort of uh, uh, intrinsicality to a certain martial idea of, of, of Futuwa, that the horse was, was a noble animal. Uh, there is also in the Sufi world a typology of souls which are presented as having animal analogies. So perhaps some people will have the soul of a dog, some will have the soul of a lion, and this is very widespread. Ghazali uses it, Persian Sufism uses it extensively. If you're looking at the founding documents, uh, the only text that occurs to me is the one that says, وَلَكُمْ فِي كُلِّ كَبِرٍ رَطْبٍ أَجْرٍ you will be rewarded, uh, which is usually translated as, you will be rewarded for kindness done to every living thing. But in fact, says everything that has a wet liver. And on the basis of that, uh, the jurists will say that it doesn't actually apply, for instance, to insects. So stamping on a scorpion uh, isn't of the same moral significance as harming a, a rabbit or a horse, for instance. Generally, that, it's in the exclusion of the insect world. But even then... You have hadiths, for instance. مَرَرْنَا بِقَرْيَةِ نَمْلٍ قَدْ أُحْرِقَتْ فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمُ أُمِرْتُ أَنْ لَا أُعَذِّبَ بِعَذَابِ اللَّهِ Companions would go travelling and they saw an anthill that had been destroyed by somebody building a fire on it. And he said, evidently disapproving of this, I've been commanded not to punish with God's punishment, which is fire. So that's, a, I think, a canonical hadith. And here it's talking even about cruel, cruelty to, to ants, which is about the sort of lowest form of uh, the animal kingdom known to, to the traditional mind. So there's an ambiguity even there. And the, the jurist, as I understand it, will say that in that case, it's because of a certain analogy. It's just an ugly thing to, to punish insects. Uh, the question of whether they actually have a consciousness or not is is not broached, but the implication is that it's obviously an inferior form of consciousness. So my question is about the relationship between animals and prophets, because we're talking about the fact that animals communicate with the prophet, and, and as you know, there's, for example, in the Kitab Shifa, a whole chapter yep. about miracles, mm -hmm. and a lot of them are about the prophet communicating with animals, and also with the Christ, and the, the prophetic histories there is always some sort of animal. I mean, we have Adam, we have the snake, we have the, the Ibrahim, we have the, the bird and the sacrifice, and this Moses, we have the snake, etc. So uh, I wonder whether animals don't have also like a role in the economy of salvation. The economy of? In the, in the history of salvation. Mm -hmm. in, in the sense that animals support prophets in the mission in some sense. So that they, They are certainly cited as uh, witnesses to prophetic, miraculous, and thaumaturgic powers. 
uh, and also as an indication of the universal reach of the prophetic message, so they hear the prophet as well as confirm the prophet's message. I've not encountered a specific theology of how that works. It's certainly not in the Kalam texts, um, the Nubuwet type of literature. I don't think it appears there at all. Probably largely because of this sort of agnosticism about the exact nature of animal accountability in the animal mind, that these are uh, pictorial representations of something that is in God's knowledge, but human beings probably can't really conceive of what it is for a camel to communicate with a prophet. Uh, it is stories that are hortatory but not really doctrinal. I may be wrong. There may well be some sort of elaborate theological treatment somewhere from a, th a theologian as to what it is for animals to witness to the moral life and to witness to a prophet, but I haven't actually encountered it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a fair number of verses in the Quran which resembles the disbelievers with an'am, and also other similes. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are there are references to uh, animals conventionally considered to be sort of uh, base or slavish, which are regarded as legitimate analogies for certain human conditions. The donkey. Uh, the dog, I think in just about every culture, the donkey, the dog, and the pig tend to get a bad press. They're identified with certain sort of swinish or cowardly qualities. Uh, that doesn't seem to affect the, the hadith genre in which the, the prophet indicates how they are to be treated. And I indicated in my talk the, the, the paradox between, on the one hand, the general Islamic sort of anxiety about the presence of dogs in the public sphere, but on the other hand, the fact that this whole bunch of hadiths in which prostitutes go to heaven because they're nice to dogs, and there's actually a large number of hadiths about dogs and the importance of kindness to dogs, even though the, the, the doggy or the canine temperament is regarded as, as a base one. So you know, it, it forms part of the Sufi language of the typology of souls on the basis of certain animal archetypes. And it's in the context of Sufism that you find this most abundantly. Uh, or even in, in the context of, you even find it amongst certain contemporary individuals who claim to have some sort of cash for insight into human souls, that they can see people as having a, a lion-like or a dog-like or a donkey-like temperament. And I, that's probably universal human typology certain in, human qualities are identified with certain animal precedents. But what's interesting is that that doesn't then spill over into any discussion amongst the Sufis or the, in the Sharia of discrimination for or against certain species. It simply doesn't have that implication. Um, I want to ask, um, seeing all the animals being abused, um, regarding food, when we eat them, the yeah. chickens and cows, mm -hmm. and also uh, regarding the caging in general, mm. And also um, the fact that we have zoos, animals being caged, and yep. this also being very in um, opposition to what Muslims actually believe about animals. Do you think that um, Muslim theologians should take a really strong stance and raise their voice against this, and also um, and that it is a very important one of the steps, and also um, to um, offer some practical steps against these issues which are happening in our society and are being seen as totally normal? going into a zoo and seeing caged yep. animals being 
I think that there's a certain unfortunate tendency amongst a lot of Muslims nowadays to regard the question of animal rights as being sort of soppy or sentimental uh, sideshow. Uh, and I think that's regrettable. The treatment of animals in the modern Muslim world is often deplorable. I'd rather be a dog in Tübingen than in Cairo, for instance. Uh, that's just the reality. Even though we have these wonderful uh, hadiths, the reality of the Muslim world, as so often, is that we don't practice what we preach. Uh, and this is an area of ethics where I think, helpfully, uh, a strong Muslim position would actually be very well received in the wider world. On a number of other issues, we're not really in sync with the conventional political correctness of the liberal West. Well, on this issue, most people are very uncomfortable about modern techniques of mass animal husbandry, battery chickens, uh, overgrazing, uh, the general overstocking of the world, the supersize me kind of idea of human beings becoming sick as a result of making the environment sick through genetically manipulated foodstuffs being given to animals which are then sick. It's a profoundly dysfunctional industry. And so much, as everybody knows, of the world's um, food crisis could be resolved if only we ate less meat and shifted to a more vegetarian diet. And there's plenty of precedent in, in early Islam for minimising the consumption of meat. But um, try and... I, I talk about this sometimes in my sermons, my khutbas, and it doesn't go down terribly well. Everybody wants to go off to eat the fried chicken or the biryani and to suggest that that is a problem. It's very, very, very poorly received, which is, which is unfortunate. And Saudi Arabia is full of these horrible battery farms. They eat vast quantities of, of fried chicken and they have the world's second highest level of diabetes as a result. And it's, it's profoundly sick and dysfunctional. What would the early Muslims have made of the scenario that you see when you come out of the, the mosque of the, the great sanctuary in Mecca and there is Burger King and there is uh, KFC. Apparently it's the world's biggest branch of Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's right outside the King Fahd Gate in Mecca. So we bought into that big time, unfortunately. And the, 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 the jihad against it has hardly started. But it's a prophetic commandment, and the language in the hadith is pretty strong. We're talking about major sins to abuse these other fellow creatures in creation. This is not a recent westernizing sentimentalism this is part of our tradition but somehow it's one of those areas where we have a blind spot As I understand it, uh, although there's an enormous industry surrounding consciousness and the whole artificial intelligence industry is, is just one spin-off of this, it's the, the next great paradigm shift for humanity, probably, the singularity, that consciousness is still not a proper philosophical or scientific term. Nobody's really been able to define it or understand it. It's oblique, it's at an angle to everything else in the physical world, even though the dominant scientific paradigm holds that it's just an aspect of 
brain function, we have a physicalist understanding of consciousness, still they don't know how the brain works to generate it or to support it. It, it remains paradoxical. Which, which is one reason why the current debates over animal rights and animal sentience are still so contested. Peter Singer is, is the leading advocate of the idea that we should oppose speciesism and give animals, in some sense, equal rights. Uh, and unfortunately, he tends to shoot himself in the foot. So, for instance, his famous controversial statement is that <clears throat> uh, an adult animal is more sentient than a human baby, and therefore, before killing adult animals, we should make sure that we're all right with the idea of postnatal abortion, which he specifically advocates on the basis of his ethics. He says it's all right to kill a neonatal baby because it's not really sentient, whereas a, a fully grown animal is, and that should be a criminal offence. That's an example of the confusions that ensue when the, I would say, ultimately sort of sacred territory of the question of the mystery of consciousness and the soul is invaded by people who have no access to any sort of divine structure or revealed basis for their apprehension of reality. They just get into paradoxes, moral outrage and confusion. In the Islamic context, we have this rich body of revelatory and exegetic material that should uh, put us ahead in the debate we already know animals have a consciousness. We can't frame exactly what it would be. We can't frame the nature of our own consciousness. It's the Quranic explanation that even the founder of the religion hasn't got much knowledge about the nature of the soul, so the animal soul, who knows. But still, there's these uh, strong statements that animals do have sentience, that they do have uh, moral uh, rights and even some sort of moral life which is there implicit in the sources so Islam is intrinsically and this is why Richard Fultz in his book says Islamic law gives actually a superior image and more rights to animals than is present in modern western philosophy and modern western jurisdictions that, that's his conclusion uh, which is again one of, the, one of the startling facts about our civilization even though as I was indicating earlier it's honoured more in the breach than the observance in the modern Muslim world. But actually to develop a philosophy of animal consciousness I think is probably impossible. I can, yeah, I, I can have a, a, a form of communication with a horse that I'm riding, with a dog that I'm patting. And I know that there is, the dog understands me on some level and that I understand the dog, but exactly to try and figure that out analytically is, I think, beyond, beyond our capacity. There is a genuine discontinuity, a dissonance between my consciousness and yours, let alone my consciousness and that of a dog or a horse. All we can do is to, to, to affirm this basic ethical commandment that uh, there is a genuine commonalty, which is not there in a lot of Western philosophy. Descartes, for instance. One of the shocking things about Descartes is that he really believed that there was no such thing as an animal mind. And to amuse himself, he used to deliberately... Uh, abuse and injure animals. It's one of the sort of uglier moments in the Western positivistic mind. But he used to sort of deliberately stab and carve up living animals with his friends and sort of amuse amuse himself with the spectacle of their groaning and their suffering, but with this philosophical conviction that there wasn't really a cogito there, so it didn't matter. From an Islamic perspective, uh, the revealed 
data absolutely prohibit such a thing, even if cognitively we can't really apprehend what the animal mind might really be. But we know it exists. to look that up. Um, I'm not specifically... Have you got any information about hunting, hunting with dogs? And hawks would be another example. Yeah. And what actually has to be said when... But usually uh, a dog is either bringing back something you've already killed with an arrow or a gun, or it's bringing back something that's alive, in which case it would be the human being that slaughters it. Anybody else aware of discussions about ethics of hunting with animals? Uh, yeah, this mm -hmm. is interesting question because I mean, it's just for trained uh, dogs. Yeah. They are al they're uh, they're uh, you have their uh, saliva. Yeah, it's not hedges. Uh, yeah. It's uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't. Uh, yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. this is an interesting aspect. Where whereas uh, normal. is that the roots of this is ancient anxieties about the presence of rabies in the Middle East and that you really don't want dogs in built-up areas because they spread disease and that the Sharia prohibition on sort of close engagement with dogs is based on a desire for disease limitation. That would be my perhaps slightly secularizing understanding of why we have this specific prohibition on close human contact with, with dogs with the exception of hunting dogs and guard dogs. If there are no more questions, we are so grateful, Dr. Winter, for your time. So if everyone will join me in, thank you.